Hello, and welcome to the Foot School Podcast. At times, there is so much happening at foot, it can be hard to catch it all before it's gone. This week, in addition to our book fest, there was an evening speaker event sponsored by the Volunteer Faculty and Parent Committee, Mosaic. It was titled, An Imam, a Rabbi, and a Priest Walk Into a School, and it was a fascinating and enlightening conversation between three local faith leaders about finding similarities and embracing differences across Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. The talk was moderated by Liam Considine, Foote's assistant head of middle school, and introduced by Foot parent and Mosaic co-chair, Kieran Zaman. Good evening, everyone. As everyone, people are arriving, I'm sure they'll find their way in and sit down as we start. Um, on behalf of Mosaic, I'm thrilled to welcome you all tonight. Mosaic is an acronym for Multicultural, Open-Minded, Supportive, Accepting, Inclusive Community. And I forgot to tell you, my name's Kieran Zaman. Um, we're so grateful to our presenters tonight and look forward to their valuable and important conversations and insight. Special thanks to Carol Poling and Zara Patwa, former co-chairs of Mosaic and longtime members. Um, a special thanks to them for their continued support. And thank you to all my fellow Mosaic members as well. It's a, really an honor to be on this committee with you guys. It's really fantastic. It's such a wonderful experience. Also, thanks must go to Liam Considine, Andy Bromage, and the maintenance staff for their valuable assistance in making this event possible. And of course, none of this would be possible without the continued support of our head of school, Carol Mose. Uh, I'm now going to introduce Liam Considine, assistant head of our middle school. Um, Liam's going to be our facilitator tonight, and I he will introduce our speakers. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, welcome to an imam, a rabbi, and a priest walk into a school. Mosaic keeps their promises, and indeed, an imam, a rabbi, and a priest did walk into our school. So welcome to Foot School. Before I introduce the speakers, um, I would like to explain how we structured this event. Uh, we have settled on an informal, conversational, and spontaneous approach uh, that draws its strength from the relationships between our three speakers. Um, we hope this will promote a discussion that has a natural flow and openness. In other words, we would like to have a very small, close space for discussion tonight. Uh, in this spirit, instead of a formal question and answer period at the end of the discussion, we invite you and encourage you to ask questions during the session. During the discussion, I will be in the audience and I'll be walking around with a microphone, um, more like Phil Donahue than Jerry Springer. I was hoping you'd get that reference. <laughs> so it's now my pleasure uh, to introduce our three speakers. Omar Bajwa is the director of Muslim life in the chaplain's office at Yale University. He earned his graduate certificate in Islamic chaplaincy from Harvard Seminary, and he has been engaged in religious service, social activism, and educational outreach since 2000. He received his MA in Near Eastern Studies with a specialization in Islamic studies from Cornell Univers University's Department of Near Eastern Studies. He also earned an MS in communication from Cornell and a BA in English Literature and Rhetoric from Binghamton University. His interests include Islam in the United States, interreligious engagement, and Islam and the global media. He regularly lectures about these topics and others at campuses, congregations, and in communities across the country. Welcome. 
Stacy Offner is the rabbi of Temple Beth Tikva in Madison, Connecticut. Rabbi Offner was the first woman rabbi in the state of Minnesota. <laughs> and the first rabbi ever to serve as the officially elected chaplain of the Minnesota State Senate. Yes, she has served as adjunct professor of Jewish ethics at Hamlin University and on the ethics committee of Abbott Northwestern Hospital and Children's Hospital of the Twin Cities. She is the immediate past vice president of the Union for Reform Judaism in New York. A magna cum laude graduate of Kenyon College, Rabbi Offner received her master's degree in Hebrew literature, her rabbinic ordination, and her doctor of divinity, honor honoris causa, from Hebrew Union College in New York City. Rabbi Offner's greatest passion is people. She lives with her partner, Nancy Abramson, director of Project OR, a program for homeless and isolated Jews in Lower Manhattan. <laughs> Ranjit K. Matthews is the 22nd rector of St. James Episcopal Church in New London, Connecticut. Welcome. He has served in this capacity for the past two and a half years. Father Ranjit is passionate about being a midwife to the realm of God in New London and the broader world and wants to offer fresh expression of this ancient faith. His hobbies include politics, movies, hip-hop culture, and music. He lives with his spouse, Joanna, and their son, Dhruv, in New London. Welcome. And I'd like to say that during our planning meeting, I would introduce them, and now they will introduce themselves. <laughs> Welcome. I'm sorry, and, just, and just to remind everybody too, remember you may, people just came in, you are invited and welcomed to ask questions or make comments during this presentation. Just raise your hand, please. Uh, good evening, everyone. I, uh, I've been selected by my friends to go first, which I'm happy to do. Uh, so thank you very much to the organizers. I just want to give them another round of applause, please, for, for putting together tonight's event. So what we came up with a format uh, is that we thought we'd tell you briefly about ourselves, a little you know, beyond the bio, um, and we'll go around. And then after that, we'll propose, we'll put out an opening sort of statement. Um, and then after that, I... Uh, what I really appreciated when we were invited in April into the foot school is that it was just very organic. Like I think the conversation flowed and the friendship amongst the three of us. And then with the students, right, there was this energy that the students brought into the conversation. So we scripted very little of it. And I felt that that worked so well. Why not try to recreate that with all of you? So let's, let's hope and pray that it goes, uh, goes that way. Um, <laughs> So just a little bit about myself. Uh, my family, is, I'm of South Asian heritage. My family is Pakistani. Both my parents were born there. I and my older brother were born there. Um, my father is a physician. He came to the United States uh, in 1980. Obviously, the US has the best medical training in the world. Uh, and we lived in Brooklyn, New York for a number of years. My father's a neurosurgeon. And then after he finished his medical training, he, we settled in Binghamton, New York, which isn't that far away. Um, it's also kind of, a, in the eyes of some people, this unknown upstate New York town. But it's some place that I call home. 
right? Uh, so I settled in Binghamton. I started there in elementary school. All of my grade schooling, public schooling was through there, college and whatnot. Um, and just a couple of quick sort of threads, and then I'll, I'll turn it over. Um, uh, in, in many ways, my family's story is like the, the traditional immigrant story, right, uh, particularly of South Asian immigrants, is that uh, there is one route to success, and that is medicine, right? <laughs> and if you can't get to medicine, then you can go to become an engineer. And my brother, my older brother, is an amazing person, and he did everything right, right? He, he was older than me. He went to medical school. He married who my parents wanted him to marry. He lives down the street from my parents. He is like the golden child, right? And so I... Are you not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I'll, I'll. So, that's a good one. Uh, and so, so just to finish off the story, what happened was is that uh, I went to college, uh, you know, with the idea of being a pre-med. Like every, you know, they say that every brown kid that goes to college is a, a default pre-med. And then you have to opt out of being pre-med, um, right, when you get there, if you change your mind. So I took, I took chemistry, and I took introduction, uh, intro to literary theory, both freshman year, first semester. And let's just say chemistry was not where my passion was, and then I fell in love with intro to literary theory. And then by second semester of freshman year, uh, I went home. My brother and I lived together, and he was a year older than me, and I said, look, bro, I think I'm going to declare an English major. And he was like, what? Like, <laughs> I was like, no, you got to help me like, talk to dad. Like, I got to tell him I'm not going to study chemistry and bio. He's like, you're on your own, man. <laughs> you, know, you know what the rules are. Okay. So anyway, I, I didn't study uh, medicine. Uh, as you can see, I studied literature. I fell in love with literature. I fell in love with philosophy. Uh, I wanted to become a writer. I went to Cornell for graduate school. And I had just entered Cornell and just gotten married when 9-11 happened. And the reason I mentioned that in my story is that if you know anything about upstate New York, uh, you know, there's parts of it that are not very politically and socially and intellectually diverse. Um, uh, Cornell is this amazing little granola crunchy bubble, right, in the midst of a, of, of, of a lot of places that aren't. And so I then I had a wonderful Jewish professor, and he was the chair of our uh, Middle Eastern Studies department. And he, his phone was ringing off the hook. He was in getting invited to high schools and campuses and interfaith panels and doing all of this. And he himself was devout as a, as a Jewish man and was just such an amazing professor that I saw him talking about religion, politics, faith, sociology of, of communities in, in, a, in a very, I think, like balanced uh, way that was also like sympathetic to assuaging people's fears. And he invited me to sort of take, go on that journey. I was essentially his apprentice. Um, and then I just really fell in love with, with engaging with people and teaching and, um, uh, and, and, and wanting to do interfaith work. And so I thought a PhD would be the route to that. I started doing a PhD. Um, and one thing that I, I always mention, particularly to my students, is that, I mean, we all need good mentors. And what I think one of the things that in my perspective that good mentors and good teachers, uh, what distinguishes them is that they're very honest with you. Right? They can see your strengths and they can see, they can compliment them and they can, they can like build them up, but they can also point out your weaknesses and they can say it with a level of candor that if you have the type of relationship, you can receive it, right? And so they sat, my advisor called me into his office um, and I was giving like three, four talks a week. I was not writing my term papers as I should have. And he said, he sat me down, we had a cup of tea and he said, look, I think that you have particular gifts. I want, I want the best for you. I want you to explore those gifts however you think you need to. Um, but you need to make a decision. Like, becoming an academic is wonderful, but just, and the world needs, like, people that teach and research and can convey information to the, to 
audiences. But I don't know if that's where your heart is. Your heart clearly seems to be somewhere else. And so I went and thought about it and prayed on it. And then I decided, like, yeah, I want to shift and go to seminary. And I left a PhD program. I went to seminary. I fell deeply in love with interfaith engagement and interreligious engagement. Um, and along the way, I just met really amazing Christian and Jewish friends and professionals and colleagues. And I, to just wrap up my story, um, in 2008, uh, you know, um, Yale was hiring. I applied to Yale. I have been blessed and privileged beyond belief to work at, uh, live in New Haven, to work in the greater New Haven area in interfaith work and to do it at Yale and to do it in a place that I, I deeply admire and, and feel very um, called to. So uh, that's essentially my story. And there's certain threads that I'll come back to a little bit later, but I want to turn the mic over. He's looking at me, so uh, I'll, I'll go second. Uh, <clears throat> I, I feel like my story is very typical, which is interesting that I should say that because what's typical and who's typical and um, maybe it was typical for me. And, uh, and I suppose what, what I mean by that is that it all flowed very naturally for me. Um, so I'll tell you how I started out in life. I. Um, I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island. For those of you who know anything about that, what you hear probably, you know, when I, I have been a resistor all my life of certain things. My resistance was to always be proud of the fact that I grew up in Great Neck. <laughs> so I, I feel blessed to have grown up in Great Neck. It was a, a, an upper middle class suburb of New York in Long Island. And as far as I was concerned, everyone was Jewish. And that, actually, that's not really true. What, as far as I was concerned, everyone was typical, normal, regular, because we were very similar. I don't think I even knew that we were all Jewish and that that was something unique about us. But uh, I certainly grew up, and as I got older, I, I realized that I was making an assumption about the world that wasn't true of the world at large. Many of us form our definitions of what the world looks like by what our block looks like. And I could today tell you the name of every kid on our block, and I know the names of every family of every house on our block, and it was really a privilege to grow up that way. We were all Jewish. We all belonged to a synagogue. We either belonged to the Reform, the Conservative, or the Orthodox synagogue, and what we lovingly called Synagogue Row, Old Mill Road, if you know Great Neck. And uh, it was in a day when also everybody was either reform, conservative, or orthodox. Um, that's changed a lot, too, uh, in, in our world today. And we all got along, and we were one. But I thought that the whole world was Jewish. We all belonged to synagogues. And a lot of the bonding amongst the kids was about not particularly enjoying going to our yeah. respective synagogues. I 
I remember, um, I have two brothers. Both became bar mitzvah. My parents, well, they didn't have a choice. My parents asked me, because I was a very wise seven-year-old, mm -hmm. they asked me if I'd like to go to more school than I was already going to. And um, I said, no. <laughs> you know, who wants to go to more school? And in those days, girls, it, it was just starting to be a choice to have girls have a bat mitzvah. Uh, boys had to, girls didn't, weren't allowed to, but then girls were just starting to. Well, if I had chosen to go to Hebrew school, the Hebrew school, um, it was essentially all boys. I remember there was one girl in the Hebrew school, it was Marcy Harmon, and she was the cantor's daughter. And there was no way I was going to Hebrew school. So I didn't. I did go to Sunday school, and I was confirmed in 10th grade. When I was in 10th grade, we were required to go to services once a month. I wasn't happy about that. Um, but then I learned that the youth group was having services, and that would count. So I went to the youth group service, and that began my deeper story into Jewish life. Um, I found it meaningful, and I explored further. Another thing happened when I was in high school, which is that I spent a semester of my junior year abroad in Belgium. And when I was in Belgium, nobody was Jewish. I went to an international school, and at that international school, it was all the, it was uh, it, on the SHAPE base, Supreme Headquarters of Allied Powers in Europe. Great acronym, isn't it? <coughs> and uh, when I was on the SHAPE base, the, uh, there were all the NATO countries were there, and they, they had required religion classes. And the head of school sat with me before school started and said, you know, we have Protestantism and we have Catholicism. And he said, they were making a special class in ethics. And I took a class in ethics with two other students, Christos, who was Greek Orthodox, and Jana, who was Muslim. And the three of us took our class together. And knowing what I wasn't helped me figure out who I was. And in a way, that's part of what I like about this, is not just what we have in common, but how we differ. And uh, it helps shape who I am. So I developed from there. I went to Kenyon College. And uh, I, it was in high school that I, d I decided I wanted to go to rabbinical school. Went to Kenyon College, then I went to rabbinical school, and I started my career in Minnesota, and I, I was the first female rabbi in Minnesota. And see, you know, I was the first female rabbi in Minnesota. They called me a woman rabbi, but at Kenyon College, I learned that that was incorrect grammar. Mm -hmm. I'm really a female rabbi, but that's another story. So um, I was in Minnesota for 25 years, and then came east, and uh, I'm at Temple Beth Tikva in Madison, Connecticut. And I, I, met, I met Ranjit first, I met him at Kenyon College. Yeah. So that's a, isn't that funny? Okay. That was very cool, that was uh, what, July of 2017? That's right, we were, yeah. we were at a clergy 
conference in, at Kenyon. Yeah, kind of meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we call it beshert. What is it called? Beshert. Beshert. That it's means meant to be. Meant to be. Beshert. Yiddish. I said it right. Beshert. 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 Like S H E R T at the end. Beshert. Beshert. Nice. Um, so, uh, folks, I'm. I I think uh, following along, my friends, I um, I failed also. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> South South Asian culture. Uh, my um, <laughs> my parents are from uh, the southern state in India called Kerala, and and typically there's an there's an understanding that you will go for medicine uh, and or engineering and or so I clearly failed that, and uh, <laughs> but I delightfully failed that. But um, I guess I the way I want to start is that my parents, coming from Kerala, Koshi and Susan, they immigrated, and then they met here in the Boston area and got married, and uh, they came from a um, a sect of Christianity called um, well, it was obviously Christianity, but the the Martha Church. So Saint Thomas who was a disciple of, of Jesus, came down to India and Kerala and evangelized, right? And so um, the people who, who were evangelized became Marthamites, or people of the Church of Thomas, right? And so um, uh, Christianity, in some sense, has been in the subcontinent, has been in India for over 2,000 years. And, um, and Thomas, he has, he has, there are many Gospels, of course, in the, in the Christian church and but this, his gospel, the Gospel of Thomas, wasn't included in the four gospels that we know of within Christianity. And, and he said so many dynamic, dope things, like, you know, like, if you look under a rock, there I am, right? In some understanding, right? Where, where God is. And, and yet, there's sort of transgressing an understanding of Christianity that we now know. In any case, I, I came out of that tradition, um, and my parents inevitably settled in, uh, in Sharon, Massachusetts, which is about you know, half an hour south of uh, Boston, um, and had also uh, a row of synagogues in Sharon. It's a um, high population. Yeah, it's, yeah, and and um, Sharon is just a wonderful place for me to grow up. And um, you know, and then my sister and I, we grew up in that space. I went to college at GW, and was sort of examining my faith at that point. I had my father was who's also a priest. Um, he brought our family to this place called St. Michael's in Milton. And this is sort of a pivotal narrative that I want to share. Um, he brought us there, and, and I was feeling a movement and an acceptance of, of who I am in that space. And then, you know, I left to, left to school in D.C. And there I was looking for a church or some place that would hold me and have me and sort of move me into sort of a critical understanding of faith. Now, I didn't find that. You know, I found a space that was much more um, literalist or maybe fundamentalist in its understanding of its own faith. And that had really a really colonizing effect on me in a way that was, in some sense, and I would say deleterious to my own upbringing, colonizing in some sense. And it just made me look very narrowly at faith, right? You don't, and so I heard this group of people say, you know, Ranja, you don't go clubbing, right? Don't go clubbing at GW. Don't go clubbing in D.C. You don't do that stuff, right? You don't, you don't hang out with girls, right? You don't do any of those natural things or, you know, 
um, what? You don't listen to like your hip hop music or the music that you love. So I became a person that was sort of not myself, right? Within this fundamentalist understanding of Christianity. And then my family and I, we bounced to India like uh, July of 99. It was my sophomore year or something. And um, there my father, on the veranda of my grandmother and grandfather's uh, home, he said, you know, Ranjit, in a population of you know, 1.2 billion people, India, you know, you know, only 3% are Christian. So he said, you know, Ranjit, do you, do you believe that most of the people are going to hell? And so I was 20, and I, I said, oh, that's <laughs> it, it really opened my mind in a particular way of how I was understanding uh, the life of Christianity and, and my own understanding of, of faith. You know, maybe like a week and a half later, we went to this cathedral in the, in the princely state of Mysore, um, in the state of Karnataka. And we went into this cathedral kind of ooing and eyeing at sort of colonial relic. And we'd taken off our shoes and gone downstairs and sort of ooing and eyeing at all the ornaments that were there in some sense. And then afterward, my parents go upstairs, and then my, my sister goes ahead, and then I go up. And then, mind you, we are without, without shoes. We're, we're wearing um, uh, chapels or, or like sandals. And in India, you typically take off your shoes and all that to, when you go into a, a public, I mean, a, a private space. In any case, I go up, and at the very top of the stairs are two girls who had leprosy, right? Two girls who didn't have legs, um, and they were rolling around on makeshift skateboards. And, um, and one of them, um, in a very deliberate sense, looked at me, and I looked at her, and like I was like, like these stairs here, and I was looking up. I looked at her eyes, and she looked at me, and in a very real, deep, and I think mystical sense, I, I feel like she was, seeing, she was seeing God in me, right? And she was saying, you know, Ranjit, um, just be yourself. You don't need to, um, you know, become somebody that you're not, right? And, and, um, and I was seeing in her the divine, right? Saying, affirming who I was as Ranjit, you know? And in a very real sense, of course, I've psychoanalyzed that like crazy, right? But in a very real sense, that was my sense of call to the priesthood, a sense of like, she was saying to me, you know, Ranjit, come back to, come back to Mysore and be here with me and fight for justice. Do that good shit, right? Um, and, and so that was sort of very moving for me and really sort of started my, my movement into ministry. And so when I look at ministry or that understanding of following Jesus in an embodied sense, it, for me it's about like, how do I follow this little girl who I met, this God that I met through this little girl, in all that I say and all that I do. And so that has been very impactful for me about you know, opening up my eyes and understanding that God can come in so many untraditional ways. And how are my eyes keeping up these blinkers about how I might see God? You know, so I find that to be you know, really relevant and really a, a lens for the way in which I walk in this world. So, sort of a little narrative that I wanted to share as we move into this space. Yeah. Thank you.
Thank you to both of you. Um, what I thought what we might do next is uh, we had prepared some th initial thoughts on what, if we had to describe to the audience the essence of our particular faith. So maybe the, what is the essence of Judaism? What is the essence of Islam? What is the essence of Christianity? Um, and obviously, I mean, there's an injustice anyway to ask the question in like two minutes or less, right? But, but, but let's try to attempt that. So what I would nominate is let's start chronologically. And might we invite you to... To uh, in terms of uh, yeah, he's not talking about my age. Yeah, yeah, I, he's I, I, talking yeah. about my religion. Okay, so uh, yeah, we we came first. That's 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 right. That's what he's saying. Okay, that's so, exactly what I was saying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so we're all children of Abraham. Mm -hmm. I think that's where that begins, and and we do begin with Abraham, and I I think I'd mark the uh, the first stop of uniqueness about Judaism with Abraham and Abraham being uh, the person who is credited with perceiving the world for the first time as having been created by one God. So before Abraham, there was a God of this, a God of this, a God of this, and significantly meant there was a God of you and there was a God of me. And my God was better than your God, which meant I am better than you. And I think that the idea of monotheism was a radical idea that was to remind us that we are all children of the same God. And that as human beings, we are created, in Hebrew we say, B'Tselem Elohim, which means in the image of God. Your story just demonstrated that, reminded us of that, and that at the core, that's what Judaism is. It's a belief that we are all created in the image of God, and therefore, dot, 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 lots of therefores, because we're one family, essentially. That's, 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 a, that's a number one. Uh, a number two, I would say, is um, that we have a mission statement, just like the foot school has a mission statement. Mm -hmm. Mosaic has a mission statement. We have a mission statement. And our mission as Jews on earth is tikkun olam, mm -hmm. which means repair of the world. Mm -hmm. And God needs us to help repair a broken world. And I think uh, from the bottom of my heart, I believe that that's our purpose. And Judaism gives us a framework to, uh, to help us achieve that purpose and realize that purpose. Uh, two more essences I'll throw out. Uh, one is um, that there are three components to Judaism. It's a God. Torah and Israel. One of the things that's unique about Judaism that's different about us is that before we're a religion, before we're a religion, we're a people. And uh, a lot of, I, I think this is a hypothesis, I think that's where a lot of anti-Semitism comes from is a lack of understanding of that because in a way, we're comparing apples and oranges when we're comparing ourselves to each other, and people want to peg us in the same peg, and we're not. 
because we're, we're fundamentally, essentially a people, and we're a people whose greatest expression of self is our religion. Um, it's why you can have secular Jews and it's not an oxymoron, it's, it's real. So um, the three components, God, Torah, and Israel. Um, in, in 2019, I'd say, uh, use different words to say those three components. God is, you know, the, the spirituality. Torah is learning. And Israel is uh, community. And those are the three components of Jewish life. And um, different people are um, drawn, different Jews are drawn to different poles there. Um, and that's why we need to be together, because some, some, some of us are really good at God, and some of us are not good at God at all. And some of us are really good at community, but we don't know anything. And some of us are good at learning. And so, so together, we, we create the whole. Well, the one other thing I'd say about the essence, because it's the famous story we have about the essence, is when the skeptic comes to the rabbi and uh, stands on one foot, and while standing on foot says, you know, I've got a busy life, I've got a lot of texting to do, i got all this stuff to do. Um, teach me the essence of Judaism while I stand on one foot. And that rabbi, Hillel, uh, famously answered and said, um, what is hateful to your neighbor, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. So there's Judaism in a nutshell. Thank you. Thanks, Stacy. I'm gonna use the board. Um, so, so one thing that I would that I would say about Christianity, and of course, there are uh, a multiplicity of Christianities, right? So, I am speaking for like you know just this one sliver of my understanding, God willing, right? And so, one word that I would use, like black. So this is what I would use is. So, so one way in which Christianity is unique is through the incarnation of God, in our own understanding, through Jesus Christ, right? So incarnation meaning God incarnating God's own self into the world and coming as an embodied flesh and blood person into, into Bethlehem, Nazareth, and then into the ministry as Jesus of Nazareth. So sort of God coming down and incarnating, becoming flesh and blood with the people which really takes on for us and for people who walk as Christians in this world, sort of the way in which we walk, not just in, not just in a church or a gathered assembly, but out with the people, ministering with one another because of the life and ministry of Jesus. So that's one thing, the incarnation. Number two, I would say, is the... So the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, God, in our eyes, who became Jesus of Nazareth, had a life for 33 years. 
And so there's an understanding that for three years of Jesus' public ministry, that's all he did, right? And that's all that we know of within the written Gospels as sorts, right? But there was 30 years, 30 years before that public ministry in which he was sort of in solidarity with the oppressed. So really that 30 years of sort of proximate connectedness to the most marginalized and the poorest of the poor in the communities in and around Israel-Palestine. So that sense of proximity to the most marginalized groups in, in Israel-Palestine. So, so we often think about those three years. But before that, there were 30 years before the three years that really made up his life. Um, and, and what did he do? Jesus, more often than not, if you look at the Gospels, is that he transgressed so many spaces, right? He sat with the poorest of the poor. He sat with the most marginalized in communities, right? And that's what, where his ministry was. He was out and about. And he never said, he never said, come and worship me. He said, come and follow me, right? Which makes his life and his, his death um, the reason, because he, he died because of his life. The life that he lived that was so transgressive to religious authorities and to imperial authority was just something that they had to kill him, right? And so his life is so much connected to his death. There is, there is no sort of escaping that. So the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. Number three, much more than this, but sort of an understanding, I'm an Episcopalian, right, which comes from, you know, King Henry VIII, right, over where we have the Archbishop of Canterbury who leads our whole Anglican communion, which is a, a body of churches all across the world. Now, the way in which we understand particular issues is what I call through this three-legged stool, right? So an understanding that comes first and foremost through the scripture, which is our Hebrew scripture, alongside this Christian scripture, so which is number one. Number two is through our reason, right? our God-given reason. So it says certainly um, all throughout the Bible, love God, Jesus says this so often, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and you know, your strength. So all of those things. So loving God through our reason and our mind. Number three is through tradition. So often within Christian scriptures, we, we look at sort of contemporary understanding and we miss the, the people who followed Jesus out in the desert soon after he was crucified and, and resurrected, right? Um, he, uh, there, were, there were people called the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers, people who lived, you know, out, out across the deserts of, you know, of, of in Egypt and in Galilee, all the different places, who lived a life of real austerity. And from that came incredible, in, in, incredible sayings and, and, and spaces that really moved. But we don't talk about that a lot. So I want to lift up you know, the desert fathers and the desert mothers who had incredible lives following the life of Jesus, but out beyond sort of traditional understanding and worship areas. Number, the, the last thing I would say is that 
as Jesus died and then rose again, which is resurrection, which is, of course, something that is unique to Christianity, after, died, after he died and rose again, he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which, as we, as people of faith within the Christian understanding, are baptized in that, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us into deeper truth around God. So those are the sort of the, the big tenets among so many that I just wanted to lift up. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm also going to use the board. Uh, do you mind if I, do I have your permission? Do I can please. erase this? Please. So I think the, the, the take, I want to leave you with two main points on how I like to help to sort of conceptualize Islam. And then after that, we're going to, uh, you know, open up to the audience. I think it'd be great to get some feedback and conversation going. The first one I want to talk about is um, what's commonly called the five pillars of Islam. And I'll list them on the board and then I'll, I'll, I'll unpack them. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to go through these that are commonly called the five pillars of Islam, and I'm going to run through them. And the, the first is faith, and the idea here is that we're talking about different uh, re religious and spiritual communities that all make truth claims, that all have spiritual and religious claims. And Islam is no different. So Islam's faith claim here, which is its creedal formula, is what's, uh, uh, it's a very simple uh, sentence that says, I'll recite it in English, that there is no God, lowercase g, except God capital G, and that Muhammad is his messenger. I'm going to put that on the board, and we're going to unpack that for a second, and then I'll go through the rest. Uh, my handwriting in English is sloppy enough. I don't want to embarrass myself with sloppy Arabic handwriting. So, but thanks for asking. Uh, so so this, sta this statement is really what I want this to hinge on, is the idea, and I hope you can all see this, that no God, and the, 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 the casing is, I think, important here. No God but God. That, in, in an essence, is what Islam revolves around, this understanding of this truth claim, you know, as it relates to uh, the idea of how we conceptualize God. So when, when I said no God, lowercase g, what Islam is, is like monotheism. It comes out of, the, as you mentioned, the Abrahamic family of monotheisms. And monotheism is, is this radical idea, as the rabbi said, is that it, it really is iconoclastic in the literal sense of the word. Like an iconoclast is someone that destroys icons or repels the idea of an icon. And icons are also synonymous with idols, right? So Islam comes and emerges in, a, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Middle East, that has a long history of Judaism and Christianity, but also a widespread pagan and idolatrous community. And so Islam emerges in that out of this sort of family, right, this heritage of, of monotheism, of Christianity and Judaism, but it's very openly opposed to paganism and idolatry. And so the lowercase g there means that there's nothing worthy of worship, of your devotion, of your submission, of your life, of your sacrifice, right? And here we'll say idol slash God, lowercase g. Things, idols come in two forms, right? There are tangible idols, which are, or I would say, and I'm part cheeky by doing this, idols that worship 
that we worship, that consume our time, that our self-worth is tied up into, for better, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And so the idea is that there are physical, tangible idols that Islam is about quite literally like deconstructing, right, and, and destroying. And then there are intangible idols, right, the idols of self, the idols of fame, of power, of lust, of beauty, of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. And that is also a distraction because it takes you away from the worship and devotion and submission to what Islam is coming as a monotheistic faith uh, out of this family as God capital G, right? Like the supreme being, the transcendent supreme being, creators of the heavens and the universe. That too often we can get, because of our own ego and weakness, we can, get, we can succumb to falling down this sort of spiral here, right? Into f obeying, worshiping, devoting ourselves to tangible or intangible idols, but really God out of his majesty, right? Um, and, and glory deserves... Uh, in the sense, our, our connection and spiritual connection, and it's to our benefit. So I hope that makes sense. That's really what all of the rest of it pivots on. So this is the first part of the credo formula. And the second part, because it's a compound sentence, would be, and Muhammad is his messenger. And this connects to the, to the lineage that Islam emerges from. So Islam recognizes in, in its scripture all of the great biblical prophets, right? The prophets of the Israelites, the prophets that are mentioned in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, that uh, uh, you know, Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, um, Jonah, and then uh, and Jesus is also considered a great prophet of God. And so, and then Muhammad is, is the final messenger. I'm sorry? Yes. Uh, and so Muhammad is the, final, is the final prophet that's recognized in that lineage. So I want to spend a little bit of time just mentioning that. The rest of these are very straightforward. Islam has a concept of prayer. Islam has a concept of charity and fasting and pilgrimage. These are unique expressions in Islam, but they're not unique to faith, right? I mean, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, pray and have a form, a modality of prayer, of charity, of fasting and of pilgrimage. And all that, what I would say is before I move on to the next point is that, I mean, when I look at it sort of stepping back, when you look at the sociology of religion, is that one could argue that these are deeply primordial spiritual practices, right? That you see this reflected in religious and spiritual traditions over the course of human history. And it looks, right? I mean, imagine a prism, right? It reflects light a certain way. This is the reflection Muslims pray five times a day in a particular a physical prayer, that they're encouraged to give charity and to fast and to perform pilgrimage. And so this is sort of the salient features of Islam that you may have seen, you know, that are very iconic pictures and whatnot. So I wanted to begin with that. And then the other, I'm going to wrap up really quickly. I'm going to erase this and put one more diagram up here. One of my teachers, one of my spiritual mentors, uh, who I'd studied with for many years, uh, it taught me what is what's, uh, like kind of a, a deceptively simple sort of concept uh, in a diagram, but I think it, uh, I use it to teach myself and to teach my students, uh, and, I'm, uh, and I want to just share it with you. If you literally just simply look at a graph, right, if this is you, this is, let's just say this is me as an individual, right, ontologically I'm a, I'm a single soul, this is me, this is the vertical axis and this is the horizontal axis. And Islam has two comments on this. If this is the divine, right, on the vertical axis, and this is uh, humanity on the horizontal axis, is that Islam's takeaway is the essence of being a conscientious, devout, observant Muslim is striving and aspiring for sincerity to God in your worship of him and compassion in your relationships with humanity.
And uh, I love the Rabbi Hillel story. I mean, I've heard it from so many of my Jewish teachers, and I, I think there's an analog in many Islamic stories as well. But really what I would sort of just add to that is the rest is commentary, right? Is that you can aspire and strive for sincerity to your worship in God and then compassion with the rest of humanity and be in the world, walk in the world, exist in the world, that compassion and empathy and love, which are so sorely lacking, shall we say, in today's world, is that that you know, would, I mean, that is the idea of an ennobled, evolved soul, right? Or a spiritual consciousness from the Muslim perspective. Um, so with that, I'll, 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 I'll conclude, and I'd love to open it up then. What do you guys think? Yeah. Okay. Are there any questions or comments uh, to add to the conversation right now? Oh, great. I, I, oh, okay. Yeah. I, oh, here, let me give the microphone just in case so everybody can hear your question. Call me Phil. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Um, um, I, I've, I've been privileged to hear you all speak before and have conversations with you, so thank you for that. Um, I want to know how you feel when you are approached by somebody who doesn't feel as inclusive as the three of you do. Um, all my conversations with you have been very warm and, and very friendly and really working towards, um, you know, coming together, but there are a lot of priests and rabbis and imams and other religious leaders who don't feel that way, who really try to divide people. How do you feel when you're approached by somebody like that? I, I, first, I, I'm just reflecting on the question. Um, one is that often I'm not approached by them, and that's the problem. You know, the, the, we're here because we want to be here, and so we're, we're predisposed to want to connect with each other, and we get the rewards of that because we have connected with each other, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's wonderful. Um, you, you, your question to me is, is a challenge, which is how do we reach those who aren't interested? Or um, I'm not sure. I just I, it, there's one story that comes to my mind, and of course it's not it's not it, it's it's not with uh, with Muslims or Christians. It's with other Jews. So um, when I was in Minnesota, I. Um, I, I, we, we, we were renting space in a Jewish community center, my synagogue, when it first started, and we didn't have a synagogue of our own. And the Jewish community center had uh, Jews of all stripes. And I said, I grew up where, where reform, conservative, and orthodox were all happy together, but that there's been more internal strife in the Jewish community where there's been, particularly for women, you know, to, to be, to be a female rabbi is um, an affront sometimes to, or can be experienced that way, by an ultra-Orthodox black hat. And I just remember being at the um, Jewish Community Center once, and I was rolling the Torah, preparing for a service, and so I was in the midst of this holy act, and a, uh, a Hasidic rabbi walked in the room and I asked for his help 
because I needed to roll the Torah, and it's much easier to do it with two people. And he came over, and he helped me roll the Torah. And I, just as you're telling the story, I'm thinking about that image that became so very precious to me of the two of us uh, connected by the Torah. And um, I don't know that it went as, f as far as I would like. Symbolically, it did. Um, I know another, another time coming home from Israel, there were, there were Hasidic uh, gentlemen from Israel who, who spoke Yiddish only. And uh, they, they spoke a little Hebrew, but in, in Israel they speak mainly Yiddish. And we got to the airport and they needed help translating something. And they didn't speak English. And then they spoke Hebrew and I spoke with them and I was pleased to be able to help them and that we were in conversation. Though some of the people who observed that were less um, gracious, maybe, than I, less generous than I was. And they said, oh, you know, they won't talk to you except for when they need to find their suitcase in the airport and they need, you know, and they need your help. So I, I don't know why you, you, your question inspired me to tell those stories. Um, but the question's great and yeah. other thoughts about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the question. I mean, I appreciate the fact that we're just kind of diving right in. I'm going to give a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, and some of them, like, I, I'm putting this intentionally to sort of be intention, right? On one level, like, I see myself, um, you know, I, as an American Muslim, Western in terms of my outlook, to say that, like, look, don't, I'm not going to step on your toes. Don't step on my toes. You do you. I do me, like, kind of stuff. And I, I really deeply appreciate that progressive sort of mindedness. Um, and I think that that is to say that if people have every right to create the community they want, right, is that they want an insular uh, uh, community, let's put it that way, that they don't want to engage with others, right, the outsider, uh, culturally, religiously, spiritually, etc. Uh, I mean, one of the beautiful things I think of American society is that one can do that as long as you're not harming others, right? Um, now, I'm going to put that in tension with another sort of thought, which is that to, to jump right into it, I am privileged to work with millennials and Generation Z like some of the smartest, most talented, really just amazing, your children, right, uh, uh, out there. And so what happens is we are in the marketplace of ideas, right? And if people, if the product, and I'm, I'm using this in, in quotes, right, if what they're putting out there to the world is this message of exclusivity, of marginalization, of saying you don't belong, you're not really welcome, I don't want to talk to you or your people that do this, this, and that, you know, people vote for, with their feet. Like, people are just going to make decisions that, well, if you don't, if we're not comfortable, you're not inviting, you're not inclusive, then that's not someone that I want to engage with. And that's very much the language of, of young people today. Who are the generation, right? Or who are the future, excuse me, of like, at the end of the day, like, that's the future of our religious and spiritual and cultural communities. And so all I'll say is that if people want to, and I know people like this, right, is that if people want to have these silos and create this very insular, exclusive communities, that's fine. I mean, it's fine in the sense of you can keep replicating it for yourself, but then don't decry the fact that we live in an increasingly secularized world, in a world in which faithlessness is on the increase. And then those same people that want to live in silos come and then bemoan the fact and say, our young people are not in touch with any religious or spiritual tradition. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in the values and the morals that we, that our grandparents taught us. And then so, you know, it's kind of, you have to hold a mirror up and say, well, how you know, what were you teaching, right? And the last thing I'll sort of say, and I feel like we're friends now, so I can be very honest with you, right? Is that like, um, 
you know, at one level we're taught, like, don't, you know, being non-judgmental and, you know, this, it, all, all ideas are valid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, you know, I do believe at one perspective that there's good religion and bad religion. And what I mean by that is that if, if you become self-righteous and your religion makes you more rude and obnoxious and arrogant and exclusive, like, I think you're doing it wrong. Like, you know, you're just, you're, you're doing, like... Yeah. No disrespect, but kind of like just pay attention, right? Like you're not like, I don't care if you're Jewish, you're Hindu, you're Muslim, or you're, you're Buddhist, or you're whatever. If like that's what you becoming more religious is, then I, I have to believe in like when we talk about like the great spiritual values that have been taught throughout human history, whether it's from Buddha or Confucius or Moses or Abraham or Jesus or Muhammad, like I don't think a fair reading of their message is one of like shunning all of these other people, right? So that's what I mean by that's religion done wrong. Um, and I think that our young people are very aware of that. They're very uh, curious and thirsty um, for genuine community and belonging. And if they see this sense of repulsion, um, they're just going to be like, you know, this is, we're living in a time now, right? The, the rise of the nuns. I mean, you must have seen the data, right, of the religiously unaffiliated because people feel burned. Um, and it's something that I take, I know that we all take very seriously, right, as community leaders and as, as, as um, people that work with parishes, so. Um. Thank you. Um, Zara, thank you for your question. Um, I feel that very viscerally. The experience that I shared um, was transformative for me when I met God through that leper girl, right, or that girl who had leprosy and um, transformed me in a way that I felt, I felt wholly accepted as I was and said, you know, Ranjit, be who you are and you are beautiful as you are. And that was transformative. And that has, that changed my life. So when I encounter uh, somebody else who's, you know, just much more maybe literalist or fundamentalist in, in understanding, it very viscerally, I, I put up some, some shields for me, you know, and I, I get, honestly, I get a little scared, right? And it, it, it triggers me to go back to that place of where I was in college, where I didn't feel as accepted. Um, and yet I also know that I have been moved also to accept all parts of who I am, the good, the bad, the in-between, the mysterious. And, and I know that as I invite myself to continually accept all that I am, I am then more able to accept people that I may not wholeheartedly agree with. So it's the permission for myself to keep on accepting myself in God that I am then more able to step out in faith and accept others. And that's something that I gingerly walk, um, I, but I want to do it, and I know it's my call as a priest, but it's also my call as a citizen, particularly in these times. And yet I know it's a, I need to challenge myself to do that more. You know? So I, I thought asking questions um, and is permission to, to ask questions. And, and there are things I'm curious about that I want to ask you just about your, your particular faith that I'm not familiar with. Or, um, so what, here's one thing. We have a tradition in Judaism of circumcision. 
and uh, Jewish boys at, the, at eight days are circumcised as a symbol of a reminder of the covenant with God. Uh, what, what's circumcision in Islam? Great question. Uh, I mean, it's, very, it's a very similar in Islam. Islam upholds that. We believe that it comes through, through uh, the patriarch Abraham. And so in Islam, you circumcise males on the seventh day. Yeah. On the seventh day? Yeah. I didn't know that. So that's great. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now, I, I come away having learned something. Why on the seventh day? You know, that's a great question. Um, uh, I know what that means. It means he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> you got me there. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, the, the idea there is, is that, you know, that, well, I think if you step back, that there are certain numbers, right, that have particular significances. And I think in a lot of Middle Eastern religions, right, three, five, seven, forty, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, scholars study this stuff, right? I, I think seven is a number, like five is a particular number. There's five daily prayers in Islam. Seven is a number, basically, on it, just to, to complete the idea of, of birth rituals, is that in Islam, you name the child on the seventh day, right? And then you shave their head on the seventh day. Um, and then you give the weight of the hair in charity. So you would measure it, and if it was whatever, grams, you would give that in, in silver, in charity to the poor. Um, and you would circumcise a boy on the seventh. So seven is, is an idea from seven days after birth that all of these uh, life rituals take place. So wh why, do you, why do you shave the head at seven the days? The idea of the uh, shaving of the head is... Um, that's a good question. <laughs> As in, I don't know. Yeah. Is that um, no? I mean, I have to look into what the exact reason is. But um, you know, one can one can say is that uh, I mean, this is speculation that um, it's uh, a child is born and different traditions talk about the idea of the shaving right as a sense of rebirth. So you have a birth, and then there's a sort of a spiritual rebirth. As in, you're you're shaving the head, you weigh it. It'll be a few grams, and then you give that. Uh, in charity to the poor, and then that you know, I mean, the, maybe it's analogous to the idea of mitzvah in in uh, in Judaism that you've done a good deed in Islam that brings baraka, that brings blessings into the life of the parents and to the child. So, so did was that the case in your own childhood? One yeah, of those yeah. I mean, uh, for me, it was for my family, and I have uh, I have three kids. I have two boys and a, and a daughter, and uh, with my boys, I, my father's a neurosurgeon. I don't know if I mentioned that before. Yeah. He's very handy with a scalpel, right? <laughs> uh, and so when, when my first son was born, he's 15 now, uh, his name is Yaqub, which is the Arabic for Jacob. Um, when he was born, I was like, hands were shaking, like I could not do it. My dad was like, move out of the way, right? And he took the razor and he was like, psh, 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 and you know, very quick and clean um, and, and did it. Um, and, then I, and then he said, the next time you're doing it. Uh, and so for my other two kids, I, uh, I shaved their head. Uh, and then we weighed the, um, the hair and gave it in charity. Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Right. Stacy, um, so I think circumcision... <laughs> I think is is viewed tra through traditional Christianity, um, really through the grace that we find through Jesus Christ. Really, so all of you know, Christianity, of course, comes through comes through Judaism, right? And our progenitor was, of course, Abraham, and 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 uh, and Judaism. And so, but what what is different for us as Christians is that. You know, all that Judaism has given us through all the law and the prophets and all of that is summed up for us through the grace of uh, Jesus Christ and the covenant of Jesus Christ coming to earth as the incarnate God. And so all of that is caught up in grace. So then people who follow Jesus Christ are sort of invited 
into a space of whether that's actually something that they want to do or not. So as I said earlier, there's a multiplicity of Christianity. So if you ask, um, for example, a Christian scientist, you ask a, an evangelical Lutheran uh, person, you ask a Baptist, you ask a Southern Baptist, they'll probably give all number of different ways of exegeting circumcision. So I don't pretend to have uh, you know, a sweet answer around that. Um, yeah, it's an interesting to hear you talk about circumcision. Is circumcision a religious practice in Christianity? It's a good question. Yeah, I didn't think so. No, I didn't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. But, oh, yes, here we go. Yeah. All right, so my kids, I don't know how it came up the other day, but we were talking about the Messiah, and I had a really hard time explaining anything. And I said, well, next week we'll ask the priest and the rabbi and, and the imam. So can you talk a little bit about what your faiths consider to be the Messiah, what, what that concept means for us, for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, the word Messiah in Hebrew is Mashiach, and Mashiach means uh, anointed one. And anointed one, biblically, was the one who became uh, king. Uh, it, was a, it, of the, it was a government kind of a thing. They became the political leader, was the Mashiach. Um, through that, theologically, um, there's a Jewish belief, uh, a hope that there will be a Mashiach, that one day there'll be a leader who really will save the world, heal the world, be that kind of a great leader. There are different Jewish beliefs about that. Um, all, what all of them have in common is uh, that that leader has not happened yet, you know, that the, the, the Messiah hasn't come. In Reform Judaism, the notion of a Messiah has evolved more into a concept of a messianic era. So it's not a singular person, but it's more an, an era, a time when things will be as we envision them to be when, 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 when the world is, is more healed than it is today. And um, I see it, uh, the belief in Mashiach is um, evidence of our capacity to hope and that it's really important to believe that that day can come even though sometimes it seems impossible. So there's our little bit about Mashiach and Messiah in Judaism. Yeah, thank you, Stacy. So um, all of that lends itself for, for me and for people of the Christian way um, to, for example, this coming Sunday, in, at least for Episcopalians and other um, people within the mainline denominations, of Christianity, look at this Sunday as Christ the King Sunday, right? Which is the last Sunday in the season of Pentecost. Pentecost being, you know, the season where the Holy Spirit came down onto the people of, you know, who were following the way of Christian Christianity. Um, so that's what we. So Christ the King really moves into that sense of the Mashiach, right? And and the Messiah, right? And and then we move into the season of hope, 
which is the season of Advent, which will not only be after this Sunday, but the following Sunday, we will move into the first season of Advent, which is a season of waiting and watching for the birth of Christ, in our eyes, the birth of the Messiah, right? And on, on Christmas Day. So, um, but that is all tied in very much to our belief as Christians to the fulfillment of, of the Hebrew scriptures, right? In, you know, sort of all throughout, we actually believe that all came to be through the gift of Jesus of Nazareth, right? And so that we find, you know, our own salvation in him. And that's all tied up. If you go to a mainline denominational service, and I can get into what mainline means, but um, uh, in part of the service, we, we read something called, you know, after I preach, right, I'll, I'll preach, then the congregation will be like, okay, that's cool, but this is what we believe, right? They'll get up and say the Nicene Creed. Now, the creed is something that came together in the Council of Nicaea back in the, in the 400s of all these different bishops coming together and saying, actually, this is what we believe, and putting it all down. So Christians all throughout the world, um, certainly within the Orthodox and certainly in the Roman Catholic and also the Protestant, say the Nicene Creed. And part of that includes all this stuff about Jesus and that he will rise, he will die, but then he will come again, right? Come again for that what we call in theology the eschaton or eschatology, the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And for us, that means when Jesus came to the world, there was a breaking in of that realm of God, which is of peace and justice and love. And so we hope when he comes again, that'll all, you know, it'll be the peaceable kingdom. So that's our hope with the Messiah, so that Messiah will come again. As you explained it, I don't have to do anything now. Uh, I think one of the things that I, I will point out um, is that uh, what the way I like to describe Islam in relationship to these kind of conversations is that, and it's kind of apropos that I'm sitting in the middle here, because there's certain elements of Islam that sort of lean towards Christianity or lean towards Christianity and have a lot in, more in common in those particularities with Christianity, and there's other elements of Islam that actually have more in common with Judaism, right? So on this question, Islam, you know, the, the Hebrew and Arabic are sister languages. So the, uh, the, the word Messiah is analogous in, in, uh, in Islam, and it means, literally means the anointed one. And so for Muslims, the, the dominant opinion, the widespread opinion is that Jesus is spoken about in the Quran, he's a prophet in the Quran, and that he is the anointed one, and, and that he will come back at the end of time. It's one of the prophecies of the end of time that, that there will emerge this sort of wicked and evil character, you know, popularly known as the Antichrist um, in you know, popular imagination. And then one of the functions of Jesus is to redeem the world, right, and to, 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 to battle evil um, and to, like, use the word heal, right? Uh, I, I, I find a beautiful uh, image in terms of healing a broken world. Um, and so th that character is, also exists in Islam. So, so just to clarify, Jesus... The Quran describes Jesus as a Messiah who will come again. Yeah, he's sense. given several names in the Quran, one of which is as the Messiah. So first of all, thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories. And I'm Coptic Christian, and and um, recently Rami Melek, who's a Coptic Christian young man, won the award for won an Oscar for, for Bohemian Rhapsody. And so I was having a whole conversation with my sons about, my God, like, never in your lifetime again are you going to see a Coptic Christian win an Oscar. Like, this is a really big deal for us. Yeah. Um, and so 
out of that, they were kind of really into it, and they all of a sudden started reading some commentaries about how there were some Coptics who, who lauded him, of course, because this was like a huge deal, and then there were some Coptics who were kind of opposed to the whole idea that he was playing a gay man. Um, and so that, of course, brought up a big discussion in our household, because that's certainly not the narrative in our household. Um, so I'm just curious how you guys deal with things that are that go against like your religious dogma when it comes to, um, you know, not about people being exclusive, but things that are actually against certain religions when it comes to like modern day, um, what our kids are facing modern day and what, what we believe, because certainly no one in my house believes that. Um, so I'm just curious how you reconcile that. That's also a great, uh, great question, and I, I'm not sure that this is an answer, but I, I think about um, how uh, there's a Eurovision contest for you know music, yeah. and, and Israel won the Eurovision contest last year, and it was a transgender person who won the contest. <laughs> and I can't quite answer the question, because I just think that's great all the way around, and I'm proud of it all the way. Um, but I'm, I'm, I imagine that there, there are others who wouldn't be. I'm, I'm not, there, and there are certainly, uh, oh, there, are, there are plenty of Jewish people who are in the news for, for, for horrific things, and I see that and I, um, I, I identify because they're Jewish, and I feel horror because they're Jewish, and um, so... The, 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 that's as, kind of as close as I can get. I can't really think of an example, maybe other Jewish people here can, of, of someone who's, who's won something and achieved something with a claim um, who I don't feel proud of uh, in, in an ethical way. Uh, I can't think of an example of that for myself. Can I just uh, jump in? I thank you very much for the question. I think that's a very real question, right? It speaks very much to the time that we live in, the questions that our young people are asking. I'm just going to throw an idea out there, which is that, um, you know, I, and, and I think maybe it's very relevant also speaking to parents and to educators, right, is that I would love to see a world in which we have much better religious literacy and interreligious literacy. Mm -hmm. I think that we all represent very ancient traditions and very deep traditions that have a lot of wisdom and a lot of thought has gone into you know, understanding the nuances of human nature, of scriptural interpretation, of how faith is lived in community, not on paper, not in a vacuum, right? And there's great sages, men and women, right? And all of our traditions that have grappled with that. I think the challenge is, is that, and then I'll just speak sort of one is inter-faith, the other is intra-faith, right? I think in our own communities, with our own houses, our own houses of worship, with our own kids, like we need to have a much better understanding of what our faith is, right? Um, and then, then you can unlayer and unpack like, wow, there's a lot of thought and wisdom that goes into this instead of these very cut and black and white, cut and dry answers that are easy to throw out, and no disrespect, I teach Sunday school, right? My own kids and, and other people's kids. But that's the danger of, like, of, of relying on a Sunday school education, is that it works like at an elementary level, but as kids intellectually mature, of course I want them to understand the complexity of literature and read Shakespeare and, and, and you know, Nietzsche and Toni Morrison, and understand physics at a better level. Why would I want them to have this like elementary school level of education of their own faith? Like, 
as a parent, as an educator, right, in my house, I need to give them like real substance so that faith is meaningful to them. And then B, when they go into the world and they're challenged with these questions, it's not just like, well, my Sunday school teacher told me or my parents told me when I was eight years old. It works at an eight-year-old level. But when you're 18, like you need to broaden your horizons. And so that's just a general call is that I think we have deep religious literacy uh, or spiritual literacy in our own you know, traditions, and we need to share that with our young people. Um, that, I think, a lot of it, in fact, so much of the, uh, um, of the misunderstanding, right, and antagonism in society that goes on, it can be traced back to people just don't know, I hate to say this, but they don't know diddly squat about other people's faiths, let alone their own faith, yeah. right? And then they're just like speaking from ignorance to ignorance. Um, so, I, I mean, there's this wonderful book, just as a book recommendation. Um, Stephen Prothero is a very uh, reputed uh, professor at Harvard, and he wrote a book um, about 10, 12 years ago. It was right when I came to Yale. Um, and it was on the idea of religious literacy. And he, you know, then was talking about how America, interestingly, there's all this polling data. Americans, if you look at sort of Western, Euro-American countries and civilization, we claim to be one of the most religious, right, Western civil countries in the world. And yet, when you poll the people, they have the worst scores of actual religious literacy. <laughs> of like knowing the basics, right, when it comes to, and I mean, that, that's a, that, that is a statistic that is troubling, but should also be a call to action. Like, we, we, as educators, what can we do to do better? And I think that's a testament to like, the perfect panels like these, right? So, huge shout out to the organizers for tonight. Yeah, um, I, would, I, would, I would also add that, um, you know, Jesus says over and over again, um, Love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, you know, and your mind, right? And so we, we, bring the, we bring our mind to worship, right? We bring our mind to Holy Scripture. And we don't, we don't walk into St. James in New London or wherever, and we don't leave our mind at the door, right? So, I mean, that's one thing. Uh, number two is that what, what we try to say at St. James is that you know, we want you to come here and feel as if, you know, you come with your whole selves. You don't just leave the part where you're a bisexual and you leave that at the door, right? You, you bring your whole selves into the space, a whole self that was made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. You know, my sister's gay. And, you know, I remember her going to a church in New Orleans, an Episcopal church, and the, the priest sort of used a text, and, and I want to get into this, use a text that was commonly used to, to bash, you know, uh, gay and lesbian folk. And, and my sister hasn't darkened the, the door of a church or a faith community. She didn't darken it for like about 10 years. And so the toxicity of what we offer has very real consequence in, in our lived realities, right? And so, um, <laughs> yeah, I... I I, I, I guess my point is is that you know when I'm in New London and preaching is that I'm, I'm while I'm thinking about the early times of Christianity, I also have to marry that in conversation with 2019 New London, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this great theologian by the name of Karl Barth, right, who said, you know, you gotta when you're preaching, you gotta hold the Bible in one hand and you gotta hold the newspaper in the other, and let the two of them be in conversation. And that is my understanding of contextual theology, right? You have to wrestle with the context and you have to exegete 
the text. Exegete meaning like dig it out. Dig it out from like the, from AD 33 and like, you know, read the Hebrew, read the Arabic, read all of it in conjunction with all that was going on. If you don't do that, I find you're doing a disservice to, to a deeper understanding of the text and what it means for now. Now for Christians, we also invite the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us, to trouble us in what we're reading so that it can breathe more life for us. Um, ask a question. Thank you. Uh, which, and I apologize in advance for any um, ignorance I may betray in this question. Uh, but I want to talk about ambiguity uh, because we have faiths up here. As I understand it, um, you know, the Torah is the law. The Talmud is attempts by scholars to reconcile the law with real life. Is that a, a fair... Again, That's I'm betraying okay. my own ignorance. <laughs> okay. uh, but what I'm interested in is that Islam and Christianity, um, where there are faith statements, and in some regards, those who are very orthodox can really believe that the way to salvation is this statement of belief. Whether it's there's no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet, or the Nicene Creed. And yet we also know that uh, the view sitting up here is this understanding that, that uh, reconciliation, that, that salvation, um, exists beyond that. So faith can be an expression of being orthodox mm -hmm. and truly believing a particular faith's tenets. Um, and yet is also faith a belief or comfort in ambiguity that perhaps the message is not as clear as it seems and yet you are people of faith. That's a doozy. <laughs> you know, I, I think for me, um, that's one, of the, that's one of the invitations to worship is, is the mystery, and I would call it mystery. The gift of walking into a space and, and, and being open to where, to where you know, the, my people who I'm sitting with and, and where we believe the Holy Spirit is moving. And the fact that it may move beyond, hopefully, and it will, beyond my own understanding, right? And that's why we're called to worship. So I be, go beyond Ranjit's understanding of faith. And that I am, through the prayers of the people, through a gathered community, I'm opened up to different understandings and realities of where the divine is, right? And so for me, it's an invitation into mystery. Um, and, and that, so I would, I would, I would, uh, I would use the, the word mystery as opposed to ambiguity. And, and that for me, invites me into a place of beauty, into a place of not knowing, you know, and, and that, um, that is a value that I love, right? Um, so sometimes I want to know, give me the answer, and yet um, for so much of it, it, sometimes it doesn't jive, and so if we can invite people to not only be gentle with themselves, but also with the text, I think that's, I think that's a real gift. Yeah, no, thank you. It's really, I really appreciate the question. I'm, I'm thinking here on, on sort of how best to approach it. Just two really quick thoughts are, uh, like, you're absolutely right. Like, our, our faiths uh, do make truth claims. Um, and uh, I think there's a value and power in that, right? But human beings at some level, like a deep intellectual, emotional intelligence level, they want, like, the, you know, they, they want certainty 
about reality, about life, and how to live a life, a meaningful life, how to make purpose. And I think religion is, is, a, is a beautiful path to make meaning and purpose in your life. And there's many expressions of it. Uh, but you're right, we live in a world of ambiguity. And I think that religion gives you structure, it gives you guidance. It, it can give you structure, it can give you guidance. It can give you uh, a comfort and a truth claim. Um, but our religions are not one-dimensional, right? Religions don't exist in vacuums. Is that they're interpreted by men and women throughout history, throughout time. Um, and that, yes, there are sort of parameters, right? There's guidelines, all right, uh, on the side of, like, this is what this religion is. But there's this wide berth inside of how you understand and nuance. And then there's majority opinions and minority opinions. And there's intra you know, faith debates that have existed over time. So, I mean, that's maybe not an answer, but I think uh, I appreciate the call to say, like, let's think more about this and interrogate it further. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a nod to my dear friend, Professor Martin Nguyen, who's in the audience here, who's also a foot parent. Um, and um, he's a theologian. I mean, he's a Muslim theologian. He teaches at Fairfield University uh, and lives in Hamden and has just written a brand new book like that is grappling with questions like this, like in 2019, in the midst of all of these social political upheavals, right, that we have, and you can go down the list, like how does one who claims to be Muslim navigate this and grapple with it? It's not like an ancient tome that you're opening up and then the answer just pops out at you, right? So I just want to give credit to, to the work of uh, Professor Nguyen. And, okay. Oh, that'd be a question, too. Okay. Hi, thank you so much. I had a question about how you, um, how you, the, the big three, view sort of the upstarts of this new like spirituality slash mindfulness slash yoga slash Oprah super soul conversations and um, how it, it, it's um, you know filled a huge vacuum for people who who aren't interested in organized religion or because of baggage that they had from Sunday school growing up or their parents or um, and what are your perspectives on this new uh, surgence of spirituality but not in your traditions no thank you I, I'll can I jump in on that I have a lot to say about that as if you don't haven't guessed already I have a lot to say about a lot of things um, but what I would say is that 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 speaks very directly to like I, I literally had this conversation at a staff meeting today at Yale right and it's an ongoing conversation and here's my two points on that which is that I'm we're very aware of that right this idea of and all of the things that you named um, the, the the rise of the wellness industry the mindfulness is a buzzword now um, what I find I, I'm troubled, and I'll tell you why I'm troubled, is at one level, th that's a symptom of a very deeper problem, right? Is that why is it? I mean, look, we have students that are mental health crises are apparent, right? There are deep social, sociological crises that are going on right now. People feel very unmoored, very unanchored. They're trying to make sense of this very stressful time that we live in politically, economically, socially, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do, and so the search for mindfulness and, and, and meditation and all of that to help you, I get it. Like, I know where that's coming from. But well, I'll use an example. Like, if mindfulness helps you or yoga helps you scratch the itch, I get it. That's a, it's a, it's, you're, you're trying to fix a problem. But what I would say is that Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they're interested with like what's causing the itch in the first place, right? There are deeper malaises 
deeper problems that we as a society and we as individuals are not addressing. And that's why I say is that these are wisdom traditions. They have a lot to offer. Maybe it had, they haven't been articulated in the best ways by religious leaders and by organized religion, but I think that the wisdom is there in these traditions. And so what I hate to say, and I don't want to be like a Debbie Downer here, but like what, I, what I'm seeing is, is that like these are quick fix solutions. Like students will pop in and do a yoga, but like why not study? Like I'm not Hindu. Yoga doesn't come from my tradition, but if I was Hindu, I'd be like, why are all these people making a ton of money on what my is an ancient tradition that goes back like 3,000, 4,000 years? And it's now just like been commodified, yeah. right? And like that I think is, there, there's, a, there's an unethical impulse there, right? Does it fix someone's, like does it make their day better? Yeah, that's awesome. But like, well then I want to invite you to ask, well why is it that you feel so bad in the first place? And what is it that one can investigate to help with that problem? Right. Um, I mean, I'll just put that out for food for thought. Yeah. What he I, said. I, I yeah. <laughs> I I think that's great. I I I also have a problem with the sort of the the commodification, right? And commodification of sometimes, which for me as an Indian can you know something around <laughs> yoga is 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 problematic around cultural appropriation in in so many particular ways, um, but. You know, it is. I also love the fact that people are are diving into that, and that it's 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 moving them in a particular way. I find that. I mean, I speak as an Indian American on that one, right? Um, I, I can, but um, it, uh, there there is a deeper need around sort of spiritual yearning in our country. And, and I find that as, as a church, irrespective if you're Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Protestant, we haven't, and religious leaders, myself included, haven't done the work of diving deeper into the rich faith that is Christianity. And that's why I talked about the desert fathers and the desert, father, desert mothers, this rich history that has been for the past 2,000 plus years of stuff to, to draw on, irrespective of the topic to lean into. And, and I think we've done a horrible job, as, as uh, Christian leaders in particular, of mining that rich wisdom resource, right? And so, um, and, but if people are getting uh, a connection and a spiritual resource to sustain them, uh, you know, it's, it's well and good. I, I would hope also that they would problematize and interrogate where it's coming from a little bit, so they can they can help themselves maybe go a little bit deeper to the religious source. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Did you want to pose a question? Uh, thank you all for uh, sharing your stories and uh, your perspectives. So there's been this question in my head that's been evolving as you've been answering and responding to people's queries. Um, and I've had the ability to kind of be in settings like this, right, an interfaith engagement. And what I find really striking is that this is great, this is productive to get the three Abrahamic faiths together on the stage, but it kind of presumes that the three Abrahamic faiths have problems with another and they need to resolve them. Um, and so, you know, interfaith is great. Intrafaith is harder, right? Oftentimes speaking to people within our own community is really mm -hmm. difficult. But as we've been talking, I can't help but think that the elephant in the room isn't necessarily faith communities, it's secularism or forms of secularity that are really perpetrating massive forms of suffering in our society today that we don't really critically look at. And it's, it's odd to me, like, you know, I'm wondering what your experience is as, as leaders of faith communities. 
how do you engage with that secular world that in many ways is seeking to marginalize communities of faith? Um, that, I mean, that is the background to why people are having spiritual malaise. You know, this is why we are in a situation where people are searching for answers or they find, you know, uh, somehow religion as a, as a possible shore. I'm just, I'm just curious because you never have a panel or someone that, rec that represents secular humanism um, or, or represents um, the mainstream secular perspective is ever present. I just kind of assume that people of faith, you've had this horrid history, but I can't help but think that our contemporary society is in a bad spot because of various types of secular nationalism, ideologies, and so forth. It's fascinating to me that, you, that as you talked about the elephant in the room, and I was on bated breath to, to kind of hear yeah. what, what, what is the elephant? The elephant? Anybody else come up with anything else? What did you? What's what? What are the? What are the? Where do you think the elephant is? Okay, good. Okay, so the the elephant could have been sort of feminism or, or women or even women role models or female messiahs or, you know, have, that's been an elephant in the room, right? And, yes? So, so I, I, what, so when you said secularism, I, it was, I, it was not what I expected, and uh, it's interesting to hear it that way. And in part, part, it's, it's challenging for me because, as I said, in Judaism, I find uh, there are a lot of Jews who identify as secular Jews, mm. and I, um, they're incorporated in my world. They're part of my world. They come to my synagogue. I affirm where they are, so I don't I don't see them as um, the other or what's missing here because I feel as a matter of fact I suppose this is more the other the, for me. I mean I I um, if I if I if I didn't come become a rabbi being a rabbi was was the only career I ever wanted. But the other thing that I wanted to do when I was in high school, and it was a debate, was if I didn't, if I didn't become a rabbi, I wanted to move to Israel. I wanted to live in Israel. Now that's not a career to live in Israel, but that's what it was for me. It was, am I gonna be a rabbi or am I gonna live in Israel? 
And um, that, that's part of uh, my effort to explain to you that, that secularism isn't the other for me. Right. Although when you talk about profit, profiteering and capitalism and uh, you know, that, that definitely I see as a, as, a, as a god, as a small g god, as an idol. Thank you. You want to jump in, or? Go ahead, and then I'll. Uh, yeah, I thought a great question. Um, um, I mean, I'll, I'll just sort of tell. Uh, I think this story maybe comes from David Foster Wallace. I'm not sure, but but the idea of like you, he talks about modernity, right? And how modernity is so so all encompassing that we don't think anything of it. So he tells a story that there's these two young fish that are swimming, and then they pass by an older fish, and then the older fish like looks at them and sort of nods as fish do, and says, "How's the water this morning?" And then they swim by and they're like, what's he talking about? You know, I mean, they're so immersed in the water that they're completely oblivious to the existence of the water. And so the older fish like kind of raises this. So I mean, that's how I, I think so many of us experience modernity and secularism. That it's like everything. Like we can't imagine like not living in a world of this and a world of driving what we want to and, you know, like eating the food that we do and wearing the clothes that we do. Like all of that, some secularism infects at some level, right? Because we live in, like, I think you said it beautifully, is that ultimately so many, so many of these malaises come from, like, late capitalism and the inequities and the structural problems that we have of this. Um, so, you know, maybe that's why there's not a secular humanist up on stage because it's just, it's everywhere. It's just sort of affecting it and that there's people of faith um, that I think in some ways are saying what secularism is doing is, like, really violently divorcing you know, a sense of the sacred from the world. Everything is cheap, it's disposable, it's, it's, it's commodifiable, it's like, you know, replaceable. And, and that is what, I mean, I'm, I'm going to make a, a sort of a, a statement, is that I think that's deeply problematic. I think it's deeply violent to like human souls. Like humans live in a world where you have to have meaning in, in the world that isn't just about money, right? And I think that's what a lot of people are yearning for. And um, I mean, I don't have an answer to your question except to say that we need more spaces that people that want to create meaning and purpose um, are in conversation with each other about their interfaith, intrafaith, and so. Yeah, I, I guess I would just jump in quickly. I know we're closing. Um, is that uh, I think this is the reason why we need to do the to do spiritual work, and spiritual work for me means inner work, right? And to create space, not only in all of our faith communities, to deep do that deep interiority, right? Which, and be reflective. You know, I remember back in college, and I would go from one protest to another, and my dad would give me a call, and he'd be like, so Ranjit, why are you doing that? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I didn't really give it some thought, you know? And, and I think part of what worship spaces and faith communities can do is that Make us to go deeper in terms of our own interiority, right? And, and give that gift so that we can be discerning of what is an idol or what is not an idol, right? Because I think we swim in those waters, right? Jesus used, in, in Palestine, Jesus used the roads of Rome. So did Paul, right? I mean, so that's kind of part of, but what is life-giving and what is not? And I think we can only do that if we cultivate that space to be quiet, Right? John of the Cross, who's a church father, said, silence is God's first language. Right? But how often do I spend that time 
in silence to cultivate that interiority to to at least discern what is what is good and what is not so good you know so i would just continue to push that for for myself you know and and maybe for others thank you thank you very much Foot School podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K through 9 in New Haven, Connecticut. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review while you're there. It will help other people find our podcast. Find more information at www.footschool.org. And thanks for listening.